Learn Persian with Chai in Conversation, Lesson 95. Salam Hamegi and welcome to Learn Persian with Chai in Conversation. So for this lesson, we are talking to Muhammad Ali of Persian Poetics. Salam, Muhammad Ali. Salam, how are you? <laughs> Good. So we're going over one of the most famous Iranian poems, Bani Adam by Sa'di. So I'd say this is one of the top five poems that every single Iranian has memorized. Do you agree, Muhammad Definitely, Ali? Definitely, without a doubt. I mean, it's so famous. Okay, so we'll get why that is in a minute. But first, let's start with a little introduction to Sa'di, who he was, the context surrounding his life. Sure. Sa'adi is not his real name. It's actually a pen name. His name is Musharraf al-Din, and he was born in the city of Shiraz, which is where he gets his second name from, Sa'adi al-Shirazi. And about 1210, although, of course, you know, at that time, we can't know for sure. His pen name comes from his patron. So the sultan of the city at the time loved his poetry and paid him what we would call today a stipend. So in his honor, he chose a pen name Sa'adi. And he was very educated. Uh, he went to the Harvard of his day, the Nizamiya College in Baghdad. I think it's called, in English, they call it the Islamic House of Wisdom. It was very famous. And it was destroyed by the Mongol invasions that happened to happen during his lifetime. And these invasions spurred his time spent, uh, I think the best word to describe would be as a refugee. Um, it has parallels to our modern uh, day life. He basically traveled the region He writes about going to North Africa, or as it's called in Persian, Maghreb. And he also went to Syria, Lebanon, Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey. And he even writes about traveling farther east, all the way up to the borders of China. So where modern Afghanistan meets China. So he was well-traveled. And then slowly but surely, as you know, the, the region came to find peace uh, under the new uh, Mongol rulers who were slowly assimilated into the local culture, he returns to his native Uh, Shiraz after spending a long life traveling and while he was traveling he actually became quite famous because he would write poems and they would you know be spread by word of mouth or copied and by the time he returns to Shiraz they were anticipating his return because they knew that he had become this kind of famous poet and through the uh, maybe in the future we can cover some of the stories of his life but his life stories let's just say it's crazy I and mean, so many incredible things that uh, that he writes I mean who knows to what extent he's exaggerated but that he writes about having done And when he returns to Shiraz, he decides to pen some more serious works. So before then, he had written just love poetry, and he actually writes about it. And the poem that we're reading is from a book, and later in the book at the end, he writes this particularly, that he was upset that he had a reputation as a jokester and like a lover boy, that he, was a non, he wasn't a serious scholar, you know, because he was kind of a scholar of Islamic studies and all that. So he decided to write this book that was full of wisdom and and lessons and, and good deeds and, you know, how you should live your life and things like that to kind of leave behind a legacy of more serious thought and more serious work as well. So this work that we're reading from is called the Golestan, which means the rose garden or the flower garden, but it has a counterpart called the Bustan, which is much longer. And the Bustan is entirely in poetry. It's called the orchard. The Golestan that we're reading from is in poetry and in prose, although today we'll be looking at a, a, a poem. And the Golestan is definitely the most famous singular work of his. So from all the way from the Bengal and India, all the way to Bosnia and North Africa, we can find copies of this work. It was read and distributed. 
So it definitely earned him this fame, you know, worldwide. So you can go to to India and to Bosnia and to Turkey. You can see local translations of this book on bookshelves still. It's incredible. You know, you go and see Gulistana Saadi written in Turkish or in Urdu. So uh, he's left behind an incredible legacy, uh, not only in Iran, where his uh, his grave, his tomb is huge and, and well-designed and full of tourists and all that, but also abroad in, in the region. He's kind of one of the great humanist thinkers, in a way, of, of this tradition. Right. So can you tell us, so the last lesson that we recorded together was about Rumi. Can you kind of compare his legacy to Rumi? Like, what was the context of, of Sadi and, you know, why has he had such a lasting legacy? Sure. It's interesting you mentioned Rumi because Sadi and Rumi actually lived at the same time, but they had very different lives. So Rumi uh, was more of a Sufi in the sense that he was more concerned with things that deal with spirituality. And he was from Khorasan, of course, and fled the Mongols westward all the way until he reached Konya, which is in modern Turkey. And Saadi uh, fled Baghdad, so he fled later. He was uh, situated there when they came and uh, sacked the city and destroyed what was, you know, then considered like the greatest city of the region. But they lived very different lives. Saadi was more of a traditional scholar, so he was more concerned with things that we would study at university today, like uh, logic and law and things like that, kind of the traditional liberal arts education. He wasn't a Sufi in the sense that Rumi was. So he has Sufi poetry and Sufi themes, but he, he wasn't like a monk. He didn't dedicate his life and renounce the world and kind of live in seclusion and things like that and pray you know, for hours and hours and chant and things like that. He actually writes about this very thing. He says that to be a Sufi, it doesn't mean that you have to you know, wear particular clothing or act in a particular way. And he has, a, he has a few poems that are very famous in this vein. So just as famous as this one is, there's another one that Iranians also love to quote. He says, uh, Which is something like, Worships not but service and good deeds. It's not about cloaks and prayer rugs and beads. So he had this, this worldview that, you know, you can be a good Muslim, a good Sufi, but still be engaged with the world, still be a fun person, still not be, you know, super serious. And that was kind of his personality. And in the Bustan, the, the work I mentioned, he writes about, uh, I believe it's about meeting Rumi. I don't know. He didn't say Rumi by name, but he says we went to Rum and there was, there was, he was famed that there was a very pious man in, in Rum, which is that they called it. And that's why we have the name Rumi. And I went to meet him and I reached his home at night and he was so busy in his night prayers that yeah, he didn't have time to receive us. So he just slept. And then the next day we woke up and we talked a bit and it seemed like the guy wasn't so interested in, in Saadi basically is the gist as, as far as I remember, which actually is how exactly how I would view it because they have such different personalities. Rumi is very serious, somber, you know, yearning, sad, things like that, very reflective. But Saadi is it's kind of like... Um, he has kind of a jesting personality. He's always, he's got a pocket full of jokes and, you know, that, kind of like that Iranian uncle that, that he's always poking and tickling you and telling you dumb jokes and, you know, do it, letting you do things that you shouldn't do. You know, parents would get upset. Like he's kind of that personality in a way. And, and Rumi is like that. Got it. He's, he's Shay Toon, I guess you could say. Yes. He very much, he very much is. Uh, yeah. And Rumi is kind of like that older <laughs> So Shay Toon for, for people that don't know. Is uh is our word for literally it means like devilish, but it means mischievous and uh and you know fun loving. <laughs> Absolutely, and and perhaps you could on the page include this picture. There's a very famous 
depiction of Saadi that's always used on his books. And it's kind of him looking at you from an angle. And I, I hope that I'm doing justice to the picture. Kind of with this like sly smirk in a way. Like he's got like a half wink and a smirk. And that's like the perfect description of his personality. It's exactly, they actually call him Sheikh Shuch Shab, which means the Sheikh, because he was, it's an honorific term. It's like sir, you know. A Shuch is a jokester, like Shuchi. And then Shab is an Arabic word. It means young, youthful. So the youthful joking sheikh. Yeah, the fun guy, basically. Well, that's great. And so then you said that he's a humanist. So what were the themes of his uh, poems usually about? Definitely. So uh, when you read his Golestan and his Bustan, which are where you'll find these kinds of reflections, and his other poems are kind of like normal love poems, but the ones where he talks about traveling, there's always this theme that, you know, where, whether he's in uh, China or he's in North Africa or in Lebanon or Syria or in modern day like Arabia, uh, there's this theme that, you know, humanity is all one. You know, the things he mentions, uh, it, it kind of has a universal, universalistic tone. So sometimes he mentions Turks or Arabs and he writes even in, in their languages, like an Arab man advising his son. Like you was saying, I was in a caravan uh, on the way to Mecca and in the camel in front of me, the Bedouin man said, um, you will, son, one day you'll be judged not on uh, who you have nasab to, right? Who you have a relationship to, because uh, this is important for Bedouin, of course. But what you have done, kasab, you know, what you've done, the deeds you've done, kaspokarit, right? So it's, it's this very human element, especially then. I mean, even now we have so many divisions, but even then you could see a Persian reading that thinking, oh, you know, you know, so the Arabs, they have these, these sentiments as well. It's, I mean, now for us, maybe it seems like a joke, like, oh, of course they do. Or maybe when he writes about China, you know, but for people then, that was like a bigger deal. You know, it was more groundbreaking, I guess. So you always sense this theme. Well, that's funny. I, that's a good transition to this particular poem. Um, and you're saying that, you know, this is kind of a universal truth. And this poem in particular is written at the top of the UN. Is that right? Yeah. So in the UN building in New York, there is uh, there's an area. I don't exactly know where one day. Hopefully I should, should go see it. There's a place where uh, various countries have basically installed things. And there is a, there's a rug with this poem. It's just like a Persian rug of this poem, basically, that's been, that's been features prominently there. And, be, and this is one of the, the things that Iranians take pride in, is that this is like our legacy at the UN. And it's, it's fascinating that a poem from the 13th century embodies the spirit of the UN so perfectly like maybe better than their charter could could ever state it. So um, that's right. But also this poem, um, right now I'm seeing it quoted all the time because, like you said, he was living in a time of great turmoil. Turmoil. There was the Mongol invasion. There were a lot of refugees, and you know he would sit in coffee houses in caravanseros and talk to all these refugees and hear their pain and, and hear what was going on. And right now we're having you know a, a lot of big crises in the world. Absolutely. And most recently we're having the like Afghanistan uh, refugee crisis. And so I'm hearing this poem quoted a lot when it comes to that as well. So although it might seem like it's it's obvious to us now, I think it's something that we can still really learn from. And we can, you know, every time I hear this poem, it gives me chills and I, and I remember our common humanity. No, absolutely. One thing, you know, we think now that we're so enlightened and we've reached this conclusion, but in so many things that we've invented recently have drawn us backwards. So before it used to be that you could travel freely across. There was no borders, really. People just travel. But now we've created this passport system and illegal and legal. And people, I, I talked to someone today who, um, not today, but I, I've gotten to know someone. I happen to also speak to them today. 
who uh, unfortunately their immigration case to America was not approved. So they lived in America for like 15 years and they just had to leave. And I was so upset. It's like, you know, it's so unfair that you live there for 15 years. You had family there. And just because some person wearing a robe decided you had to leave now that you have to leave. Right. Or the people who have a certain document or a certain cousin, they can go. But if you don't, if you have an Iranian or Afghan passport or Iraqi passport, then you're not allowed to go. And it, it's so fundamentally unfair. It's like against the spirit of this poem. Right. So we still have a lot to learn from it. Right. OK, so let's get right into the poem. So first, let's talk about kind of what is the structure of poem that he that Sadi would write in? Sure. So he would write in this text in, in two ways. So he has one thing that is called Saj in Persian, which means poetic prose, basically. So it's, it's prose, but it has so many internal rhymes that it reads like it's a poem. But what we're reading today is a, is a proper poem, and it's called Masnavi, kind of like what we read with Rumi. And it's called that because every line rhymes with itself. So we'll see that soon. And uh, it's a, the lines are rather short, so it, it flows. It's a pretty smooth poem to read, and it's very concise. Okay, perfect. So then let's get right into the poem. So Muhammad Ali is going to read the uh, the Persian, and then I'm actually going to read his translation of the Persian line by line. So go ahead. Sure. So to make it uh, go by smoother, because it rhymes with every two lines, I'll read two lines at a time. All right. Bani Adam azay yek peykarand. The sons of Adam are limbs of a frame, for in creation from one soul they came. If hard times cause one member to feel pain, at ease and rest the others can't remain. تو که از مهنت دیگران بیغمی نشاید که نامت نهند آدمی If a limb's in pain and you do not care the title human being you can't share All right <laughs> Great So that was a that was the poem and the translation so it's a very short poem Right but it's amazing how much meaning he's He's managed to pack in, in just three three couplets. It's so beautiful. Right, definitely. Okay, so let's go over it again. Let's read the first two lines and let's go over that. Um, so again, if you want to read the Farsi, I'll read the English. Absolutely. Bani Adam azay yek peykarand ke dar afarinish zayek gaharand. There's a bit of debate on on this first line. It's just like the the last poem we read actually. In the first line there's debate. So in the last one there's debate between whether it's Bishno Inne or Azne. And if you don't know what I'm referring, go back and listen to our last podcast. We, we read over the poem. I think it was, let me check, it's lesson 91. <laughs> Great. So this one, uh, the last word is Peikarand in the edition that I have, which is they are of the same body. And the other version is Digarand, which is they are of each other. They are parts of each other. So it's just one letter and the translation doesn't make it difference they're parts of each other parts of a body the theme is the same and then the first word yeah and i feel like i hear both of them equally often exactly exactly it's it's about half and half just like the the roomy one actually and then it's interesting uh the words that he chooses to use so when he says bani adam the sons of adam i translated it sons because i was constricted by the meter so i decided to to translate it in a very particular rhyme and meter in english 
But Bani is understood in a non-gendered sense. And we know that Persian is generally not a gendered mm. language. It just means children is kind of the essence that he's getting at. Children of Adam, according to the Abrahamic worldview, or if you don't have an Abrahamic religion, humanity, all, all people, basically, is what he's getting at. And then it's interesting, the word he uses, aza is a, is a very archaic Persian word for limbs. Like, they're literally limbs of each other, right? Like, we're one body of humanity in all the different people. Whether, I mean, in his worldview, there was like a few ethnicities, like Chinese, Indian, Persian, Turkish, you know, things like that. So maybe we would need a, a multi-limb like a human. But anyway, like every limb, like an arm is the Arabs and the other arm is the Persians. And, you know, the nose is, is Turks and one foot is people from this place and that place. Like it's a very intimate analogy, right? And then he says, and in creation, they're from one soul. So gohar can mean essence, it can mean gem, it can mean soul. But what he's getting at, you know, regardless of the meaning, the particular meaning uh, you take from that word, is that we're all coming from one thing. We all share the same source. Salam Hamiki. I hope you're enjoying the lesson. Just a brief break here to let you know that this poetry lesson is part of the Chai in Conversation poetry course, in which we use different poems to advance our knowledge of the Persian language, and is intended for both beginner and more advanced Persian speakers. This podcast audio lesson is only one part of the resources we offer to learn the Persian language. Check out our website at chaiandconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I to see everything we have to offer for your Persian language learning journey. And it's interesting. So the word adam mm-hmm. in Persian means human being, mm-hmm. that it does come from, like it is Adam. Exactly, Adam. yeah. Interesting uh, parallel there too. Okay, so then the sons of Adam are limbs of a frame, for in creation from one soul they came. So, again, let's let's go over that word gohanan. So you're saying that that is that something that we use still in conversation? Gohar? Definitely. So gohar can mean a jewel. Although now we actually we use the, an Arabized version of this. So when the Arabs came to Persia, they realized that we had a lot of letters that they don't have. So they just changed it to the closest Arabic letter. So for example, Isfahan used to be Ispahan or Sepahan. And then they, they made it a fe because they don't have a pe. And they also don't have a G in classical Arabic. So they made it into a jim. So gohar became johar, which we use in modern Persian. It means ink as well. Or you have javoher, which means jewelry is the plural, right? But uh, the, the, the essence of it is still present in our day-to-day speech, right? And it's also a name. Gohar is a feminine name. It's kind of considered old-fashioned now, but you can still meet people who are named, you know, Gohar Khanum. Mm. <laughs> okay, so then should we go over the next two lines? Sure, sure, sure. So he says, "Cho ozvi be dardavarad ruzgar, digar ozvara namonat qarar." So he says, um, basically, if a, a limb is brought to pain by by the times, right? Ruzgar is is an interesting word in Persian. It's similar to like the times in English, you know. If, Hard times or like what he was going through, the Mongol invasions, happened to bring one group in pain. The other limbs, just like a human, you know, if your hand is in pain, your whole body is upset. It's not like your hand is independently upset, right? So this is the, his idea is that in theory, humans should strive to be like that. And the other people, they don't have qarar. So the word qarar is interesting because nowadays when we say qarar, it's like agreement, right? 
But if you think about the essence of the word agreement, like agreeable in English, like nice, you know, has has similar connotations. It gives an idea of stability, of, of serenity, of calmness. So the other people cannot remain in a state of serenity or calm. This is funny. It's such a simple poem. Like, <laughs> it's the whole thing together that has a really beautiful meaning, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But each part of it, it seems like it's very simple, very straightforward. It's interesting you bring this up, actually, because in the context of this poem, so this poem is part of a story. And basically, Saadi is in Damascus, and he's at the grave of John the Baptist. So the grave of John the Baptist, uh, the biblical and Quranic figure, is in Damascus. And he's there, and he's praying for John the Baptist. And he sees that a king, one of the kings of the Arabs, he says, and I think he says one of because he doesn't want to get himself in any trouble, comes in and he says this king was known for being a tyrant. He was famous for oppressing his people. And then the king sees me and something or another, I'm sorry if I'm half remembering it, but basically the king understands that Saadi is like an important scholar, like he's a known person. So someone says something or something or another, and he says, can you give me some advice or Tell me something, you know, intelligent that you professors know, something like that. And then it's interesting because maybe the guy, it's beautifully brought it up, was expecting something complicated, right? But Saadi gives him a very short, very simple poem. It's like the simplest poem in the whole book. Like every line is like five words and it's like six lines. So it's a very basic uh, poem. And I, and I feel like that was purposeful in the context. Right, right. Well, let's, let's read the conclusion of the poem, the last sure, few sure. lines. تو که از مهنت دیگران بیغمی نشاید که نامت نهند آدمی So here, um, he's addressing us directly. So in the story, the king. So he's saying, oh, you, and, and this is kind of like an accusative tone in, in Persian. تو, you know, like if you say that to someone and describe them, usually it's like taking an offense. You know, you who are careless or don't feel any sadness about other people's pain, you know, you're oppressive, you're, you're mean, you hurt others. It's not befitting, you know, Nashoyad is like from, the, it's like the name Shayan, you know, the, the, the deserving mm-hmm. one, it's a Persian name. So he's saying Nashoyad, it's unbefitting for you to be called a human being. So it's a kind of an intense ending to the poem. For sure. Yeah. So I think it was, it was very simple. It was like moving along and then all of a sudden he turns and then it kind of gives a little bit of a twist, you know? It's uh, it's assuming, like you said, it's saying to instead of shoma. There's two yeah, different ways to address right, someone, right. like with the formal and respectful way or by saying to, which is more like uh, you'd say that to someone who's your age and like you're, you know, or someone younger than you. So so like you said, it's kind of an accusatory tone. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's assuming that you are not that you have no qualms over the pain of others. Exactly. Um, and then at the very, very end, we use that word Adam again. Uh, exactly. So we bring it back to the very first line of the poem. So you are, you cannot be called Adam. You're not a human. Right, right. Or that and you, you, you won't receive the respect of being called a human. Exactly, exactly. And one of the reasons I think, again, I think I said earlier that we think that we're enlightened now and We've, you know, achieved human rights declarations and we have the UN and we share things on social media. But we have, you know, in a weird way, we've we've circled back around to what he's talking about, where we have this point of view now where we're worried about what happens in our country only. So a lot of times right. where when tragedies occur in other countries, I have friends from those countries and they say, hey, how come no one in America posts about this? Like uh, this attack happened in Iraq or Afghanistan 
or in, in this country or another and or in Sudan and, and no one cares like no one is sharing anything you know people wouldn't even if you go to the grocery store no one would even know but if like I don't know someone hit someone with a car in your neighborhood you would be worried like oh my god someone got hit by a car on our street you know we have such a localized sense of humanity unfortunately and, you know whether it be in the west or the east or religious non-religious unfortunately it's just universal right right or i mean even a lot of times now if someone gets hit by a car in your neighborhood you don't even notice even that yeah even again something that localized but you know i, I see this even on the streets of of tehran where you know where we all natively speak the language that this poem is in if i say oh you know in the next door neighbor country something happened people say ah forget that just go upon your day-to-day -day life you know why would you care about right. that unfortunately right I do feel like saying this poem right now is very, it would be very political. It would be seen as very, very Absolutely. political, yeah. even though it's such a simple message. It's such a, like, we cannot be at ease when our neighbors are hurting. We cannot be at ease if any member of, like, humanity is, is hurting. Exactly. It reminds me of that, um, this very famous poem I attributed to, I think, a reverend from World War II. It's like, first they came for the Jews, but I didn't do anything because I right. wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the atheists and the unionists and then etc and then when they came for me there was no one and you, th that sentiment is is it's almost the same where if you don't do something about pain somewhere then when it comes to another place in humanity then those people if you didn't stand for them well then why should they do anything about your if you don't care for others why should another person care for you and unfortunately and uh, as society like modernizes more i think like for example the bystander effect is something that i've read about where if you're in your street or a small town and you fall down, people would help you. But then in major cities, when stuff happens, no one even cares. You know, people are like so atomized and focused on their own thing. My friend was saying the other day in Tehran, I was walking down the street and uh, apparently like a, something was on fire, like a, like a plot of land had caught on fire. And no one even like everyone was just walking by this fire, not even like stopping to do anything about it. And you know, it just goes to show we need the message of this poem more than ever. Yeah, and we're recording this in September of 2021, and I can't believe I'm saying the the coronavirus is still going still, on. Yeah. And that's a that's a great example of this poem as well. You know, we're having this whole vaccine issue, and some countries can get the vaccine, some countries can't get the vaccine, and this gets brought up a lot. It's saying, you know, we can't have a localized view of this. We can't just say, okay, our country's okay because we're all connected. If one country's hurting in this, you know, we're still all in this together. No, I remember there was a, that controversial tweet where someone said, I don't want to bring up the name or the country, but someone said that we shouldn't allow countries that have issues with us to get this vaccine. And I, right. I, one thing I that, 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 yeah, one thing that really made me feel happy was the overwhelming outcry from all political angles of people saying, OK, we're all humans at the end of the day. And like Sadi's saying, you know, if in one place Corona is going on, then it'll come back to us. You know, we're we're one unit at the end of the day. Exactly, exactly. Well, great. I'm super excited about uh, memorizing this poem. I'm embarrassed to say I don't have it memorized yet, but that'll change very, very soon. <laughs> and uh, just as we do with all of our other poems, we're going to now go through this poem, uh, you know, word by word, line by line um, in subsequent lessons and learn all of these words, how to use them in a uh, conversation. So like Muhammad Ali says, some of these words now have different contexts, like qarar. Qarar is a word that we use very often uh, to mean like a meeting or an appointment. Um, but then in this poem, it has a totally different context. And it's really fun for me. It's like a, a little puzzle to to figure out what those words are. 
um, how they've changed and how they they make you really understand a poem. Um, because, you know, learning a, a poem in the original language really changes things and really definitely makes you understand the poem in a totally different way. So this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for analyzing this poem with me. No worries. It's my pleasure. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to, we ask that our students send us videos of them uh, reciting poems, these poems in different beautiful locations. And I think this, I'm most excited about this poem than any poem that we've, we've learned so far. Not that, I mean, the other ones have been amazing as well. But again, this is just such a beautiful, simple message. And I think we can all relate to it. It's needed now more than ever, especially at this moment in time. Definitely. So we look forward to getting your videos. And again, Muhammad Ali, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's, it's my pleasure and my honor. Yeah, and we'll be back with more poetry soon. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to check out our website at chaiinconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I to sign up for a free 30-day trial to our Persian language learning courses. This lesson was hosted by me, Leila Shams, and we were joined by Muhammad Ali of Persian Poetics. The episode has been edited by Chadwick Wood. Babak Rajabi wrote and performed our theme music. And until next time, Orbanishuma from Leila. Bye.